So I'm feeling very refreshed and I'm very excited to be with you today and to be here with my success sister, Libby Gill, so that we can start off this segment by giving you some active listening skills. And Libby's going to share some of the stories from her life coaching sessions that will really catapult you to success and help you be a better listener. Now, segment two is very thrilling. It's best-selling author Kathleen McGowan with her historical thriller in the Mary Magdalene series. It's called The Expected One. And if you loved Einstein's design, The Da Vinci Code, or Angels and Demons, you are going to love this interview because it's from the woman's perspective. And then vivacious Lindsay Pollack joins us in segment three to give us 90 things to do before joining the real world after college with her information-packed book, Getting from College to Career. So, of course, we have a great show for you, lots of edutainment. Sit back, grab a cup of tea, and just enjoy today. And if you want to call in to talk with our guests, you can do so toll-free, 866-613-1612. Well, we want to know if anybody is really listening out there. Are you listening to the show? Are you listening to each other? Can anyone really master basic listening, even though sometimes it seems like it's definitely a lost art? I know in my family we seem to all be talking and nobody's listening. Maybe that's the Italian way. But Libby has some great uh, tips for you because there's really a lot more to the scale of listening than what we've been taught or what we believe to be true. Sure, there are the basics of listening, although, uh, Cynthia, it sounds like you haven't even mastered the basics in, in your, your family. Know. We have a you bell, could... Libby. We have to ring a bell when we want to talk. Uh, okay, you have to decide who has the floor. Exactly. Maybe we'll get you the rules of parliamentary procedure, and, and you could do it that way. But there is a deeper level of listening, and it, this is what I call focused listening, where you really connect with people because you actively engage and let them know that you have a deep level of compassion and interest. You don't have to agree, but you convey that sense of caring, which really draws out the speaker and engages them in a dialogue back and forth. And that's what we're going to talk about today and also give you some skills on how you can brush up on your basics but also take the deeper active level of listening to to new heights. And, you know, it's so important, Libby, because, you know, I'm kind of joking when I talk about that everybody talks, but it is true. You go to parties, et cetera, and you wonder, are people really actively listening? And I know that you're going to give us some of the tips on how we can show that we care and really participate in conversations so that people feel feel like they're heard and we're not just giving lip service. Right, and you know how often you go to an event and you talk to somebody and you even if they're not actively, you know, with their eyes searching around and darting around the room, but you can still get that sense of they're kind of checking out who else is out there and sort of half listening to you. I just hate that. I just feel, I just, that's when I want to walk away. Yeah, because you feel disregarded. And, and I think we're getting worse because multitasking and having on the television and your CD player and your computer and, you know, 12 devices at once while you're carrying on a conversation, either with the person sitting right there or on the phone, we're all becoming so accustomed to that as a way of life. So old-fashioned conversation where you sit and connect and there's nothing but the other person, it's, it's almost a lost art, and that's what we're going to get back to. And one thing that really summed this up for me, you know, I, I used to be a guest lecturer and a staff lecturer at uh, Cal State Northridge, and a student once was telling me about her French class, and she'd sort of pulled off this interesting feat that she was relaying to me. But at the first class, the instructor 
wanted everybody to go around the room, and, and I'll butcher the French language, but I know you can speak it, Cynthia, and they had to introduce themselves, you know, my, my name, a Libby, and all of that, back and forth, and to go around the entire room. And the instructor just kind of jokingly said, and, you know, when we're done, somebody can can recite all the names back to us. And there were about 40 people in the class, and this one woman said, okay, I can do that. And she took the bait, and they went around the room with everybody introducing themselves to the next person and on and on and on. And then the instructor turned to this woman who was telling me the story and said, okay, go ahead. She named every single person, 40 complete strangers, who had just rattled off their names, and she she had no problem. She didn't miss a beat. She got every single name right. That is so impressive. That is totally focused listening. That's exactly right. And I asked her about that. I said, now, did you have some trick? Was there some little mind game you were playing? How did you do this? And she said, no, I made a decision. Once I took that challenge, I made a decision to really zero in and listen, not the way we do in conversations or at the dinner table or, as she said, in the lecture hall, you know, when you're in a classroom, but to really hear each person and connect it into her brain. And I thought that was fascinating. She had no special training, no trick, but she really understood instinctively that there was this deeper level of listening. And so it made me really think about the basics that most of us have mastered, but also the deeper level and really the difference between those two. You know, I wanted to ask you something, though, before we um, we go on to the following steps. And, you know, and I know this first step, then, is to recognize the difference between basic and focused listening. And that is, in your experience, though, is it more difficult to remember names and numbers, for example, as opposed to concepts or stories? You know, it's different for different people. It's an interesting thing. I find stories much easier to remember, although if I pay attention, if I go into a setting, I did a, a lecture the other day, and there were about eight people there that were all part of this uh, this process, and I just decided I need to know every name, and I just went in and paid attention and repeated the name, and I remembered every name. It wasn't a problem, but it does take some training. You know, it's hard to rattle off numbers. Initially, you know, when they began assigning telephone numbers, the the common wisdom was that you could remember seven digits, and that's why we had seven-digit phone numbers that any more than that was too much for the human brain. And now, of course, we've got, you know, you've got to have the area code and all of that. But that was the thinking behind that is that's about what the, the normal human brain can hold. You know, because I know with me is I have to do just as you do with names, is I have to make a conscientious effort. I have to repeat it back to myself. Oh, your name is John? Hi, John. I'm Cynthia. And then I have to say it one more time. John? So I need to repeat it three times before it will really go in my brain. And if I don't say it out loud, it's, it tends that, you know, five minutes later I may not remember it. But I can remember every story they'll tell me. And, right. and I think it's even better to say the name again or to say, I'm sorry, I've already forgotten your name, than to have a 20-minute conversation and not have a clue what the person's name oh, is. Oh, then that's a really good tip is yep. to immediately say that. So success step number one is recognize the difference between basic and focused listening and in addition to that, if you forget something, immediately speak up and say, you know, I'm sorry, I forgot your name already, you know. Because the other person has more than likely forgotten yours, too. Right. So you might as well be the one who breaks the ice. Yeah, right. And just be, say it with confidence. Right. 
So let's talk a little bit about basic listening, and then we can get to the deeper level of that focus listening. Okay, great idea. Here are some things to ask yourself. So I'm going to ask you, Cynthia, and everybody who's listening, about some of their basic skills. Okay. Do you maintain eye contact? That doesn't mean to, to stare at the person and not blink your eyes, but do you maintain appropriate eye contact with the speaker? I absolutely do because that's something that we're taught in acting early on, and you know that from being an actor as well, is if you don't have eye contact, you'd have no communication. And I also think it's very rude if you're looking around the room. So that is definitely something that you pay attention. Right. And do you lean in? Do you mirror their body language to show the speaker that you're engaged? They may get it only on a subliminal level, but to really, really give a physical presence that mirrors what they're doing. Yes, I do because I studied neurolinguistic programming, which is all about mirroring body language and tonality, et cetera, so that you can better connect with the people that you want to connect with. And again, I think that one's a very critical one because if, if someone's very energetic, you want to be more energetic. If they're a little more low key and I come in with my usual bubbly, you know, over the top self, it would be alienate them. So right. you have to pay attention to where their level is. Right, you sort of play the room. That's exactly right. Here's a biggie. Do you refrain from interrupting until a person reaches a natural break in their thought and their speaking pattern? Guilty as charged, Libby. I often get so excited that I may finish sentences, and it's something I'm really working on. I do, too, and I have to work on that one, too. Although, as a coach, there are times I know people can eat up their time with me by telling a story that's going to go on forever, and I just say, pardon me, I'm going to stop you here. I have a question, and I just jump in and let them know. But I think that's okay in that circumstance. What do you think? Because these people have come to you. They've hired you as a coach, and uh, time is valuable, and people tend to ramble. And when it's your time and their time, I feel as a coach it's up to us to say, okay, let's cut to the chase. I get where you're coming from. You know, don't you think? I think that one's okay. And I let them know in advance that, you know, there there are going to be times that I'm going to interrupt you and all that kind of stuff. So they're not surprised when it happens. Well, then that's a good tip for our listeners is if you are in a situation like that and you feel like that in the storytelling or the conversation or whatever you are going to interrupt, Say it up front and say, look it, because I'm working with you or because we're doing this, I may interject something. Is that all right? Well, and that can be really effective in the workplace. And I, I work with a lot of people on leadership skills. When you know you've got two minutes before your conference call begins and one of your staff members comes in and starts to explain this to you, they're going to pick up that you're rushed, that you're not really focused on what they're saying. You need to say, look, I've only got a minute. So it's either a, so make it snap or get to the point or let's regroup later. And rather than give them the, the message, the, even if it's nonverbal, that, you know, I'm not really paying attention to you. Well, you know, another place where that would be really helpful is a phone call. When someone calls you and you really have one or two minutes and you say right away, uh, you know, I have two minutes to give you, otherwise I'll have to call you back. Or also pull a polite conversation when you call someone else to say, is this a good time? Exactly. And what most people do instead is you answer the phone and you say, hello? Mm-hmm. So that they're trying to send you that message. I'm too busy, but they don't say it. They just answer in a sort of rude or gruff tone of voice, it would be much more civil to say, I've only got a minute, may I call you back? I like these tips. These are important. Good. Well, you know, we're all about creating a civil world because we certainly need it now. Okay, so your second your second uh, success step is just to brush up on those basics that we've been talking through. 
All right, and we have those basics down, maintaining appropriate eye contact, using your mirroring body language, refrain from interrupting. Those are very important. So now let's go on and talk about focus listing, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. So if you're thinking, you know, when I'm, I'm going to fly out tomorrow, I've got a, a plane to catch in the morning, and you know how we've heard those directions that the uh, the flight attendants give you about security procedures about a million times about, you know, what to do in the event of an emergency, blah, blah, blah. And mostly we tune out, even though they ask us not to. Now, think about how you listen to those instructions. Now imagine yourself on a flight where you've just been told your plane is about to crash and they're going to tell you those instructions. Now think how the level of listening would intensify. It would be completely different if you realized your life was on the line, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Wonderful point there, yes. You'd be completely committed to hearing every word of the instructions, concentrating on the flight attendant, shutting out everything else, and, and deeply caring about that message. So there are some ways you can take those tactics into real life, into everyday situations, non-threatening situations, like we were talking about functions where you're going to be talking to people. When you go in, make a conscious commitment, not just a decision, but a commitment. I'm going to remember the name of everyone I'm introduced to, and just what you said, you repeat the name if necessary two or three times, ask again a few minutes later, but decide that you're really going to commit those names to memory. Okay, and also, and I think you could also, if they give you a business card, you know, you could write it down. Sometimes I have to write things to make it go. So, oh, so do I. Yeah. If you know you talked about something, you write it on the back of their card, and then you slip it into your bag or your pocket exactly. for later. Exactly. Now, also, when you're in a, in a business or a social situation, you've got to really train yourself. And, and this you've learned as an actress, shut out the distractions, shut out the noise around you to really concentrate on the speaker. Look them in the face. Look them in the eyes. If you feel yourself getting diverted, make a conscious effort to pull yourself back into their eyes and what they're saying. And this is a really good uh, lesson, too, that anyone who doesn't want to be an actor but just wants to be a more active listener may want to take one acting class yeah. and learn how to put all the distractions away because that is something that all actors learn early on, and it's a great skill that we can use in everyday life. Well, because what people don't usually see is there's the actor and they're delivering the, the scene or the monologue, and all around them is this madhouse of of crew and other cast members and work going on and sets being painted and, you know, all kinds of things that are happening, you have to just shut that out and, and go through the scene that you're doing and as if none of that is even, even, even in your eye line, though most of the time it is. And finally, the last thing is, is you really have to connect with the speaker by caring about what they have to say. Listen to their intent. You don't have to agree to, with what they say, but Listen, see if you can just get onto their wavelength, understand what their intention is by what they're saying, observe their body language, their demeanor, and really fuel your focus listening with some compassion, curiosity about another human being's point of view. So it's good in this circumstance, I think, to ask a question that may clarify what they're saying more because that indicates to the person who's speaking that you really are listening when you ask a question that relates to what they were talking about. Definitely, and it takes your conversation to a deeper level, 
and it becomes not a, a monologue or a soliloquy, but a dialogue back and forth where you sort of, you know, bat the ball back over to them, and you encourage them to go to a deeper level, and, and you mirror that as well. That also creates um, a better communication, and it develops relationships. So these are those are very key uh, steps, I think. So that that success step is to master the keys to focus, listening, commitment, concentration, and caring. And this one specifically is very focused listening. Absolutely, and everybody can be a better listener. We can. There's no doubt about it. It's it's that we just tend to talk too much, but we have to remember that we have two ears and one mouth. I know it's a cliche, but that's what the importance, that's why we have that. And just a quick, um, I wanted just to find out, how's your accountability on your fitness? Did you start your Pilates? Did you call your girlfriend? I did call my girlfriend, and we haven't gone yet, but we've got a date. You know, I'm leaving town tomorrow for a week. Yes. And uh, it, as soon as I get back, we've got our gym day to go take our Pilates class together. So. Great thing. And I just want to tell people that Libby is off to lecture as well on a cruise line. So you have a wonderful time. Make sure that to go to LibbyGill.com to get your personal coaching, life coaching. Libby's fantastic. Uh, bon voyage, Libby. Thank you. Yes, and, and we'll be talking when you get back, and we'll have more exciting Success Sister coaching tips in the Coaching Corner. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan. I'm Mary Hart, and this is Empowering America. She was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1924. She was blessed with a beautiful voice, and by 19, young Sarah had entered and won an amateur hour contest at Harlem's famous Apollo Theater. A year later, singer Billy Eckstein invited her to join his new group, featuring the legendary Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Miles Davis. Sarah, now nicknamed Sassy, dazzled all with the amazing flexibility of her voice. At 20 years old, she cut her first record and was fast becoming a legend among her fellow musicians. She joined Mercury Records in 1954 and embarked on the most prolific years of her career. Over the next three decades, Sassy toured the world and cut more records, her last in 1987. Three years later, in 1990, Sarah Sassy Vaughn passed away, leaving a gaping hole in the world of music. Empowering America is sponsored by the Foundation of American Women in Radio and Television and is made possible by the generous support of AT&T. Caring for the communities where we live and work. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Brian, your personal growth coach on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Our purpose in providing you this show is to communicate to you that you already possess everything you need to be the producer, the writer, the director, and, of course, the star of your own life. We have three rules. We want you to smile, have fun, and be willing to be wild and wacky, which means take risks. And, of course, we want you to read some great books. 
This show is brought to you from the charity Be the Star You Are that works to empower women, families, and youth through improved literacy and positive media. So please visit the website Be the Star You Are. Dot org for more information or make a contribution or just help us keep the show on the air and bringing you all these incredible authors. Well, 2,000 years ago, Mary Magdalene hid a set of scrolls on the rocky hills of the French Pyrenees, and the scrolls contained her version of the events and the characters that we often read about in the New Testament. Now, they were protected by supernatural forces, and these sacred scrolls could only be uncovered by a special seeker, one who fulfilled the ancient prophecy of the expected one. And best-selling author Kathleen McGowan has spent over 20 years researching these legends surrounding the gospel of Mary Magdalene. She's been on several continents, and she's with us today to talk about her most stellar book and a series that it's creating. It's called The Expected One. Welcome, Kathleen, to Be the Star You Are. Hello. Thank you. It's great to be here. I love the spirit of your show. It's oh, wonderful. Thank you, Kathleen. i got to tell you, you're going to have to be selling a lot of copies. I just got back from teaching on a scholarship at sea, and I brought your book with me. And I cannot tell you how many people wanted that, wanted that book, and so I said, go buy it. <laughs> That's great, thank you. If if anybody out there liked, you know, uh, Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons or Einstein's Design, that whole thing, you're going to be crazy about this one. And, of course, I love it because it's about Mary Magdalene and a whole woman's point of view. But before we talk about your book, I wanted to talk about you because it seems that your protagonist, Maureen Pascal, I mean, I couldn't help but seeing that this is you the whole way through. And the first question I had is, do you actually have the ring? I'm wearing it right now. Yes, I do. So did it happen the way that it, that it happened with your journalist, your character in your book? It, yeah, it did. It happened almost verbatim uh, the way that it happened oh, in the book. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, I, I know we don't want to give secrets away, but can we talk about your book? Because March 22nd is a very special day, and there was the legend that, Anyone born on March 22nd, blah, 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 blah. So would you talk a little bit about this? Because when when that happened, when uh, Maureen Pascal got to Jerusalem and was going through the Stations of the Cross and found herself at this little shop and then was attracted to this ring that um, she didn't know whether, you know, she just, it was like, she was mesmerized by it, and the shop owner said, put it on, and she felt like, oh, no, don't, I don't want to, you know, I, you, you thought you were going to get scammed. From then on, the story just takes this huge twist. Yeah, and my life took a huge twist. <laughs> and so this, I mean, it's, it sounds like everything you base, even though this is a fictional, it's really pretty true. It's a really semi-true, true life story. It really is. It's inspired, it's certainly inspired by the events in my life. And so the, there are, are, are two aspects of the book, as you know. There is the modern story and there is the ancient story. And that's what was really fun, is to read actually what Mary Magdalene wrote in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which you have on certain pages, and then to read what's happening in today's day and what happens in France. So talk to us about it. I mean, how it, how it began, how you decided to start writing the book. It was like you were drawn to this, and your family is descended from a long line of Mary Magdalene um, 
uh, lineage. Yes, and I had no idea about any of that when I started this. And that's one of the things that was really sort of magical in this process. And it's one of the reasons that I ultimately wrote the book the way that I did, because it was such an extraordinary experience of discovery for me that I realized it was as important for me to share that with other people as it was to share Mary Magdalene's story. Um, because I also wanted to give people the courage to um, believe in themselves and have faith and go after these things that sometimes might feel um, a little bit crazy, you know. And, um, and for example, as you know in the story, um, as I was doing research about Mary Magdalene, I started having dreams about her, and I started to have visions about her. And you had the same visions that your journalist character, Maureen Pascal, had. Is that correct? Yes. The, the visions that I describe you. in the book were verbatim the visions that I actually had. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I had chills through the whole book. I, could, I just read it so quickly. It was like <laughs> I, was, I was mesmerized because I wanted to have these dreams. Well, the funny thing is, you know, so many people, when I first wrote this book, told me, don't tell anyone that you really had dreams. Don't tell anyone because people will think you were crazy. No, I think it's better because it really gives veracity to your story. I mean, and the whole, the dates, you know, the, the whole timeline, everything, the being in possession of the ring and tracing your roots to Mary Magdalene, and then the whole horror of the groups that want to erase this, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and erase the fact that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus, that she really was, you know, a, a queen, a princess. She was royalty, I guess is the right word. Yes. In her own right. Absolutely. And that really was the, the driving force for me was to restore Mary Magdalene to her rightful place in history um, because it has been taken from her. And, and not just her. You know, as you many know, women, as you, you talk about yes. many women, I hope you're going to write about them as well. I am, absolutely. I originally set out to write the same book that Maureen writes in my book. Um, I set out to write a book about a number of different women in history who had been unfairly maligned and intentionally misrepresented. Yeah, like Marie Antoinette. Right, and Lucretia Borgia. And these were women who were very powerful and important women in their time and were denigrated for being powerful and important women. Well, you said something in the back of your book that was to me was extraordinarily powerful and I read this passage to so many people on the cruise ship and the, the passage was basically that basically in a, in, throughout history these powerful women were eliminated because they were powerful I mean their stories you know like her story it was his story it was yes. his story and the, so these women whether they were great or not they all became villains or prostitutes or something terrible so that it would um, help the man look better. It would, it would put the men more on the pedestal and and um, make the women look less of who they were because yeah, it was a male society. Yeah, that is, and that is exactly what happened. And, it, and nowhere is that more clearly illustrated than in the history of Mary Magdalene because if we recognize her as who she really is, and who she really is is not only the wife and partner of Jesus, she's also essentially the founder of Christianity in the Western world. She was the favorite disciple. I mean, she was the chosen disciple. He leaves his ministry to her. Uh -huh. He left his ministry to her, and that is what is so important. And she comes to France against all odds as a widow, as a refugee, with nothing but the clothes on her back and her children, and founds missions to keep his, te his teachings going. This is an incredible, heroic, extraordinary woman who deserves to be remembered in this way. And that's why what I was wondering, because you're having all of this, there are, the, with the scrolls and with everything that's coming to light now, 
is is it going to be that history will be rewritten so that we'll have her story so that Mary Magdalene will be able to clear her name? I know with Vatican II that, you know, the Catholic Church no longer says she's a prostitute, but i got to tell you, I grew up Catholic. I grew up, you know, during Vatican II, and I still remember, you know, the whole cleansing of Jesus' feet because she was a fallen woman. Right. That was the whole thing. I mean, And you can still go to any Catholic church in the Western world and hear that same sermon. Right. Despite the fact that in the 1960s the Vatican came out and said this is no longer true. But But we still believe that. For some reason it's still passed down. The traditions of the church die very, very hard, unfortunately. And this has been a tradition that has been etched in stone for 2,000 years. And it's also a tradition that's been very convenient for the the, some of the older belief systems, um, which are now being challenged. But to answer your last question, um, I do think uh, and hope and pray that history is being rewritten. Now, in this case, for example, I had to write it as fiction because no one would publish me as nonfiction because it was too controversial. Mm-hmm. But even with, like, the, the books out with the Da Vinci Code, I just had an author last week that had Einstein's divine, a design that was, that was this kind of, it was talks about Mary Magdalene, this kind of thing. With the popularity of some of these books, don't you think that we as a world are opening up that maybe history, like you say so succinctly in your book, is it's just what's written down. It's not necessarily what the facts are. I mean, I was a history major in college, and the more I read and the more I read and the more I read, I realize that events are totally different. And you experienced that growing up in Northern Ireland, that what you read about that happened to you never really happened. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely true. And people are waking up to it, and people are becoming more interested in it and really paying attention. And, you know, my book at the end of this year will be in 30 languages in 45 countries, which is proof that people... Congratulations. Thank you very much. And it, but it's proof that people really want this information. They're really hungry for it. Mm-hmm. And I get hundreds of letters from people all over the world saying, gosh, it's about time, and why don't we know this, and how has this been kept from us? And, and you know, they're really they're positive and they're inspired inspiring letters from people who are excited about this information. It shouldn't be threatening to anyone. It's actually a very positive spiritual movement that's happening. You are so right, Kathleen. When I, you know, I mean, it's totally positive. I, I don't understand why we have to put these women down. Why can't they be powerful? Why can't they be influential? Because it helps all of us. Their message was one of kindness and goodness and compassion and love. And, you know, there's, there's no reason that we can't embrace it. And it was extraordinary journeys that your character took and that obviously you took. But I have to ask you, there was a lot of danger and a lot of, I mean, you, you know, your, again, your character, I'll say your character escaped death many times. Why are there so many cults? out there, maybe they're not cults, but that's what I'm calling them, mm-hmm. that are so determined to keep the truth from coming out, that are willing to kill to keep the truth from coming out. Well, unfortunately, any time you deal with fanaticism on any level, it can be a very dangerous thing. Um, and in some cases, you know, you know that exists here. Um, and... You know, the good news is the positive far outweighs the negative. So while there are those secret societies and cults, as you call them, who are have been determined through history to keep the truth from coming out, they're becoming less and less powerful. And part of, one of the reasons for that is the power of the media in the 21st century. You know, it's not like the further back you go, the easier it was to control information. Now in the 21st century, it's almost impossible to control information. Um, so now that there's more opportunity to get the information out there, um, this sort of this movement 
towards the truth and towards looking at history a different way is really, really growing. And the good news is the power of those people who have tried to keep the truth under wraps has diminished. And, you know, it's the truth against the world, and the truth is winning. Well, and we all also today with the Internet and all the different technology, we have the opportunity to choose what we want to believe and to mm-hmm. filter through it. Now, I want you to talk a little bit about the paintings and, and the, the various uh, artists throughout history because one that you refer to a lot is um, Sandro Botticelli. Right. And in the sequel that I am writing right now to the expected one, he is a he is a primary character. The sequel actually takes place in the Renaissance. And dis- is this the Book of Love that's yes. coming out now? Yes. Okay. The Book of okay. Love is the, is the second book, which will be out next spring. Okay. Um, and takes place primarily during the Italian Renaissance, where I show you how these masterpieces were were created. But art becomes extremely important because during a time when you could not openly say. We recognize Mary Magdalene as the founder of Christianity here in the Western world. We recognize her as our Madonna, as our teacher, as the person who saved Jesus' teachings. You couldn't do that. That was heresy. That was punishable by death. Well, that's why you got burned at the stake, right? Right. And we, and we know that millions of people, particularly the Catholic people in France, a million people were wiped out in a crusade against them because they could prove that they were, they were descendants from Mary Magdalene. And they had to go away. So when yeah, they were considered heretics. And absolutely. so that was a crusade that the Catholic Church raged against Catholics. It was the only time in history that that has ever happened. But it was genocide. They eradicated an entire culture of people. So during the, what, what evolves out of this is the people who do survive go underground and continue their faith and continue their teachings, and they express their faith through symbolism. And that symbolism starts showing up in art. In art, and particularly in the art of the Renaissance. So there are a number of cases, for example, on the hardcover and the paperback of my book, the painting of the Madonna of the Magnificat, which is a Botticelli painting, and my particular favorite, is on the cover of the book. And while most people believe that to be a painting of the Virgin Mary, it's absolutely not. It was Botticelli celebrating Mary Magdalene's life and her legacy in his own way. And so there are a number of ways you can determine that by looking. There's symbols in it. There's a stream in the background, which was the underground stream to tell you that there's hidden knowledge in this painting. The baby in the painting is holding a pomegranate, which was a symbol of fertility, but it was also a reference to the Song of Songs, a song about love and marriage, to tell you that this is the sacred bride of Jesus. So what happens is we have to learn to look at these paintings in a different way by understanding the symbols that these people use to tell us their true story and their true faith. Well, and some of the symbols like the skull, uh, you know, representing John the Baptist and the repenting, all of that, you know, and the fingers being held. You know, I never, until I read your book, I didn't understand what those were. And um, I've studied a lot of art, but I didn't understand that, and I really appreciated it. So does Mary, I mean, in your dreams, you're still having visions of Mary Magdalene? I still dream about her periodically, not as, not as much as I used to. I say, you know, I like to believe that maybe she's found a little more peace that her story is out. Well, because you're the chosen one here. <laughs> so now, what, what about um, um, The Last Supper, the, the big controversy with her being in the picture of The Last Supper by um, Leonardo da Vinci? Well, you know, and, and the funny thing is, if you have read my you have read my book. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it, but very I just want diff- you to talk about it here. <laughs> I have a very different perspective on oh, Leonardo da Vinci. I know, yours is totally different. Yeah. Um, I believe that all these people, including Dan Brown, um, who believe that Leonardo da Vinci was the big defender of Mary Magdalene, um, didn't finish their homework. I think they started digging long enough to find out that Leonardo
Leonardo shows up in some secret societies doing some heretical things, but they didn't dig far enough to see what he was really doing. And as it turns out, Leonardo da Vinci was a dedicated Johannite. He he was a believer that John the Baptist was the true Messiah. Right, and, and so in reality, he did not like Mary Magdalene. He no, was in reality, he despised Mary Magdalene. Right, right. I mean, that's what your book talks about, is that he did not like her. Right, and so that character in The Last Supper is not Mary Magdalene. That character in The Last Supper is John, John. the beloved disciple. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, I'm so glad you said that. Well, <laughs> I want to send people to your website. I want them to get the book. I have to tell you, it's a magnificent thriller. I can't wait for her next book. It's a total page-turner. You will be just zipping through it. And it takes so much of it takes place in France and um, and, and then, of course, Ireland and then your, your priest cousin. Do you really have the cousin as the priest? Um, I don't have a cousin who's a priest, but a good friend. inspired by some people that yeah. I know, yes. So the website is is uh, www.theexpectedone.com. Is that correct? Yes, it is. All right. Well, I tell you, Kathleen, I'm crazy about your book. Bravo for getting it out. Hello to Mary Magdalene and all the wonderful women <laughs> of her story. I want to refer to it as that. Uh, you're a delight, and just keep doing what you're doing, and obviously it's going to be uh, even a major, more major success than it already is. So you've been listening to Cynthia Bryan and Kathleen McGowan. Her book is The Expected One, www.theexpectedone.com. Kathleen, thank you so much for being a guest on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. It was very much my pleasure. I love your show. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, tune in. I will. Thank we'll you be Cynthia. back in a minute. Yeah, you're listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style, Be the Star You Are, and we're going to college and to career when we come back. Another great segment. Stay with us. Looking for answers to those uncommon questions? Looking for a way to heal? Looking for spiritual guidance? Come visit www.angelstoguideyou.com. We are all blessed with spiritual helpers, spiritual gifts, and spiritual healing. Get in touch with your spirit. Get answers. Get healing. www.angelstoguideyou.com. Remember, you're not alone. angelstoguideyou.com. Hear that? You just gotta love that sound. Really, it's one of this country's great treasures. The unmistakable sound of a nice California Chardonnay. There's nothing like it. Well, except of course for the sound of nails pounding lumber, building new homes across America, or states sizzling on the grill. In fact, 40% of American products are shipped by freight railroads. From computers to produce, we even carry trucks. Really, chances are the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. 70% of new American cars, 40% of the grain harvest. More Americans depend on us than ever. Freight railroads contribute more than $31 billion a year to the U.S. economy. And since one freight train carries a load of up to 500 trucks, that means less fuel, less traffic. A better environment, a better tomorrow. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Well, you're listening to Star 
Hairstyle, Be the Star You Are, with me, Cynthia Bryan, your personal growth coach. And the program is brought to the airwaves every week under the auspices of the charity, Be the Star You Are, empowering women, families, and youth through increased literacy and positive messages. Just like this radio show, you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Keep our program on the air so that you can hear all your favorite authors. Go to BeTheStarYouAre.org or call toll-free 877-944-STAR. Thanks for helping the women, the families, and the youth. They're all in need of hope and inspiration. Well, there's a saying, fools never learn from their mistakes. Smart people learn from their mistakes. And wise people learn from other people's mistakes. Well, our next guest embodies that slogan as she wrote a definitive guide to getting from college to career with 90 things you can do before joining the real world. Her book is called Getting from College to Career, perfect title, and her name is Lindsay Pollack. Welcome, Lindsay, to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Hi, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. I think your book is fantastic. It is a great book for not just the kids that are graduating from college, but I I think that we could use it at every stage in our life, and I had to laugh when you said that um, you were embarrassed that you organized your library alphabetically. Mine is is not only organized alphabetically, it's also organized in categories, just like a library, because I, like you, you I have to be organized in order to get everything done, and I I think that's a great tip. I love it. Color-coded, organized, and alphabetized. You got it. You got it. <laughs> well, listen, you sounded like that you had um, a really fantastic uh, career right now in, because you wanted to be a writer, but also that when you graduated from college, you really didn't know what to do. You fortunately, you know, uh, networked a bit. You ended up going abroad to do uh, postgraduate work, but then you came back, moved back into your parents' house, and was like, now what? So this book sprang from some of the mistakes you made, the lessons you learned, the people you talked to, and you have all these great tips that all of us can use to get a career where we're going to follow our bliss. And I love the idea that you don't advise people just to take any job that's not going to make you happy, but the important thing is to live your dream. Absolutely. You know, I wrote the book that I wish I had when I got back from grad school and was sitting in my parents' house not knowing what to do with myself, and I went back and looked at all the things that helped me at the time and the things I learned in the workplace, and I really wrote the book that I wish every young person could have because it's a scary time of life, and there's so much you can do, so many actions you can take, and now that I'm about 11 years out of college, I see a lot of my friends who took jobs just because they were going to make a lot of money or it was an easy job job to get or their parents thought they should do it, and they're really unhappy now. So I, I, my advice to younger people is go out and find what you enjoy, whatever it takes, and, and get started because that's what makes life great. You spend a lot of time at work. Well, and now you have written the book that young people can use that you wanted, and the, the key to it is you were talking about that in our lifetime. You know, the chances are that the first job you take isn't going to be a big career, isn't going to be your whole career. So, you know, don't get so wound up about, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life so I can get the gold watch. Instead, you know, be looking at two or three years out, is this going to feed your soul and give you some tools you need to get going? And in the meantime, you're networking, you're talking to people, and you're avoiding some of the, some of the mistakes that are often made. Exactly. I always say your first job is not a soulmate. It's just a job to get you started on your career path. So 
try to pick the best opportunity you can, a place where you're doing something you enjoy, a job with a good mentor, somewhere where you're giving back, a good company to get you started, but it's not going to be the place you stay. I've, I've found statistics saying that most students stay in their first job for an average of about two years. So it's really just a stepping stone and, and not something to consider as, as a lifelong decision. Well, one of the things you talk about in your book is the importance of uh, internships and the importance of using the career center while you're still in school. And I do think that people really overlook that. I know that I totally did. <laughs> I am, looking back now, my daughter's in college, and I'm mm-hmm. telling her, you know, keep going for those internships and, and go to the career center. So could you talk to us about that important tip that's in your book? Because there's so much valuable information there. You know, I'm with you. Probably my biggest regret about college is that I don't even think I set foot in the career center of my college, and I, I admit now how much I regret that. But looking back now as as a grown-up in the workforce, all of the services, coaching, advice, free books, information, connections for networking, all of that is free and right at your fingertips at your career services office. So take advantage of it. And the great news is even for students who've already graduated, those services are still free when you're an alum. So you can go back to your college, even if you're several years out of school, and use all of those services. You can mock interview. You can find out about scholarships or programs just for graduates or students at your particular school. So it's it's really tailor-made um, just to serve you. So I, I think everyone should take advantage of that because it's pretty expensive to find a lot of this information. And, well, and it is. I, mean, you know, I, I do coaching for people, mm-hmm. and people would have to pay me for that. Exactly. <laughs> so you can go to your um, college center, your career center, and get all of this. And speaking of alums, you have a, one of your tips in your book is uh, get in contact with some of the alumni or join the Alumni Association as soon as possible because many, many alums want to help their, the future alums. You know, it's like a camaraderie. It's almost like a, sor- a sorority or a fraternity of being from the same school. Exactly. It's part of your friends and family network, and most colleges now have these great databases where you can search for people by their company, by their industry. I get calls all the time from students who want to be writers, and I'm thrilled to hear from a student at my college. Well, you know, doesn't that give you a connection? I mean, I know that when I'm out and somebody says that they went to UCLA or Cal Berkeley, which are my alma maters, I'm like, yeah, you know, go Bears, go Bruins. And you immediately have something, a commonality that starts a discussion. And then you usually do end up giving some tips or, you know, trading a card or something that could be useful. And I find, I find that that is something that is important is to work with the alumni. Now, one of the things that you talk about now that we're talking about networking is that 70 to 80, this is a statistic from your book, 70 to 80 percent of jobs in the workplace are actually found through networking, whether it be friends, family, or different events. That's a high number. In other words, it's not, the jobs aren't on the Internet. Exactly, exactly. And the proportion of time you spend in your job search should be related to that statistic. So 70 to 80 percent of your time should be spent attending events, talking to alumni, chatting with your family about people they know. All of that counts towards your job search, but a lot of students make the mistake of sitting on the Internet for hours at a time, and that's helpful, but it's much more about the people you know. Everyone I interviewed at companies said the best way to get into a company, find out about an opportunity, is always through a human being. So that's really where you should start. And as you said, alumni is a great place to start because you have a natural connection. 
Well, you know, you gave you have many stories in your books uh, from yourself, things that have happened mm-hmm. to you as well as other people, and how they got their first job or how they continued. I mean, and just how you got to Australia, I thought was was fascinating because it wasn't like you graduated from college and said, "I am now going to do my graduate work in Australia." But, you know, you actually put yourself out there so that you could meet people, and that was the catalyst. Exactly. I'd love to share a little bit of the story, like you I and your daughter. I love that story because I'm all about going abroad. I think it really expands your horizons. Oh, it's huge. And nowadays with the globalization, it's it's so, so important. It's really necessary now. It's not even optional, in my opinion, to have global knowledge. Yeah, good um, point. Yeah, but my Australia story, I was following my mom, and she uh, owns her own business and had been uh, coached by an organization, and she got me an internship there, and they said, we can't pay you, but we'll bring you to every networking event we attend so that you can help yourself find a job after college. This was my junior year, and they brought me to a Rotary Club, and Rotary offers international scholarships, and I sat next to a guy at the club, and he said, what are you interested in? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, would you be interested in going abroad? And I said, absolutely, and that started the path. So I was in the right internship at the right place at the right time, and I jumped at the opportunity. So you, you never know where it's going to come from. Well, and that's a super important thing that your book points out is don't be attached to the outcome. Just, mm-hmm. you know, show up. Like Woody Allen says, mm-hmm. you know, the biggest part of doing anything is showing up. Show up and be open to all the possibilities. I would say show up, and I would add to that follow-up. So once you attend the events and you meet the people, make sure that you're the first one to keep in touch. It's it's up to the student to make that connection and, and keep it going. So show up and then keep the connection and, and maintain the relationship. And I agree, and I was that was going to be my next point. I'm right at page 124, number <laughs> 39, be the first to follow up. This is something I feel it's a lost art. I know that I worked hard teaching my kids that you always write thank you notes and mm-hmm. you handwrite them and you send them out. But, you know, in this day and age, especially of instant uh, IMs and, and emails, people have forgotten that, and it makes a huge impression. So it's really key to um, to say thank you and to write notes. And if I think if you people would do that one thing, it would... Um, actually make a better impression about our younger generation that, you know, you were talking about so often that the young generation now is, you know, called the entitlement generation mm-hmm. and they want it all now and they don't want to work for it. So things like that would be very impressive. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, for students to do something slightly old-fashioned like sending a nice thank you note and maybe if you're sending to an alum, send a, a note on stationery from the school that you go to to oh, remind them of that. Idea. You know, little little choices can make these big impressions. You know, if you're an artist, send a card with one of your favorite pictures on it. If you're into writing, you know, I have a lot of stationery with typewriters and pencils on them to remind people that's my interest. And that goes a long way because most people nowadays, they're constantly on their BlackBerry and all they get in the mail is bills. So it feels good to get a nice letter from a grateful student. It really stands out nowadays for students to do that. Well, speaking of letters, you also talk about mentors and people who are your heroes. And you have that wonderful note in there about, um, you know, your, the girl that wrote on her, put, made a website and put down her heroes. Mm. And sure enough, she got an, a letter saying, thank you, I am so touched and anything I can do for you. And now not only is the woman her mentor, but, you know, she's had many of her writings in major magazines. So I think, you know, reaching out to people that we admire is a, is a great thing. The worst that can happen is nothing happens. 
Absolutely, and you might think that some of your idols in the world get tons and tons of fan mail, but the people I interviewed said they really don't, and they're so honored when somebody sends a genuine, thoughtful email or letter saying, you know, I really appreciate your work. Perhaps you could share one or two pieces of advice with someone aspiring to be in your shoes, and most people write back. I did that with an editor-in-chief of a women's magazine when I was in college, and she wrote back, absolutely. Well, you know, Kate White to be That's who it was. Oh, you're talking about I it think, was Kate right? White. Yeah. Um, she, was, she was on our show, and uh, she said exactly that. So, well, she practices when I read what that she about preaches. Kate White and how you did that. So I, I really feel that if you take the time to show interest in what they're doing and what they have done and their accomplishments and let them know that you are aspiring to be like them and any little tip. I know that I personally answer every email and every letter that I get. I always do. And people always are surprised when you answer things. But that's, I think that's part of etiquette. It's part of caring, and it's part of that pass it forward. You know, if I can add a point to that, um, a lot of the professionals um, in positions like yours where they get letters from younger people, often the younger person will ask a question and the professional person, the idol, so to speak, will write back and give some advice. And they said almost half of the time the student never writes back to thank them. So I would add that it's so important to be gracious and say thank you if anyone gives advice. And a lot of students, for some reason, forget that important step. So I would just reiterate the importance of, of being grateful. You know, I, I really want to piggyback on what you just said because I get a lot of emails from students that will say, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing this paper or whatever and I needed to interview a person in your position. And they give me the questions and I take the time to answer them and then I never hear from them again. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and then, of course, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And the ones that have kept in touch, I've kept in touch with them and, and you know, it's become a mentoring kind of relationship. So you're very right about that. Another point you had in your book that is something that I think is always important is uh, be nice to the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. be kind to the secretaries and the receptionists, and you know, don't always be going for the head honcho because we don't know who's going to be the next head honcho. Just be a decent person and be good to everybody. Absolutely. Manners count. Etiquette matters. And most recruiters I talked to said that they'll ask the receptionist or the administrative assistant what they thought of a student coming in to interview to see what they act like out, out in the waiting room. And that's really, really important. So just, you know, be a good citizen. Be a good person. It's it's common sense and, and matters, but it really matters when you're looking for your first job. And something else that you mentioned that I think is important here is to Google, or in my case, I always I tell people to good search because mm-hmm. yes. then, uh, if you put be the star you are in it, we'll get one penny. But, <laughs> uh, but in any case, do a search on yourself and make sure there's no pictures or things that are negative out there for uh, job recruiters because I chuckled at what you were talking about, how your your friend had that uh, experience of we won't say what it was, but it was very funny. <laughs> so let's give out uh, your website, please, because it's a terrific book, and anyone who is looking for a career or a job or in college now, this would be a great gift as a... A, um, a, a, actually a graduation from, from high school and or a just in college job. So what is the website, Lindsay? Thank you, Cynthia. It's gettingfromcollegetocareer.com. Gettingfromcollegetocareer.com. That is the name of the book, Getting From College to Career. The author is Lindsay Polak. Lindsay, thanks for being a guest on Star Style. Be the star you are. You are terrific, and this is a fantastic book, Getting From College to Career. 
You've been listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style, Be The Star You Are. For more information on the charity, visit BeTheStarYouAre.org. For more information on Star Style or coaching, go to CynthiaBryan.com. Thanks for being great listeners. We'll see you next week. And until then, celebrate. Go out into the world. Shine and sparkle. And be the star you are. I'm Cynthia Bryan. Ciao for now. Thanks for listening. I show where you are, let the music start.